So here's the thing. We're not, we're not going to talk about any old people except for me. Recently, you know, I'm, I'm just after having hip surgery back in March, I'm, I'm now starting to get active again and playing a little pickleball with my wife. And, you know, I had the hip thing. And, and then we go over to the sportsplex and, and uh, there's other things. And all of a sudden there's a knee thing. And on top of the hip thing, and there's a little bit of a back thing, and there's, you know, sports, when I used to play sports, my superpower was speed and quickness, and, and my mind would be going so fast, but the body was, like, back, back there, and it, it just reminds you that each and every day, you start to see what you are breaking down. You start to see capabilities that you always took for granted starting to dissipate and disappear. You're starting to have other things enter into your life as a norm. I've talked to people in this church who are dealing with similar kinds of things, back pains, neck pain. Sorry, Lynn, we'll pray for you. Um, Barry and Ella are are in the battle for uh, just peace in their bodies. And this reminds us that, you know, we are mortal beings. We live in corrupted flesh. The, the outcome of that, the ultimate outcome, is physical death. And many people, as they enter into these later decades of life, this becomes abundantly clear. And for some, it becomes an all-consuming thought, background thought. And it can bring to a lot of folks a sense of depression and hopelessness. Kind of like, what is this all for? And we wonder, and the world wonders, what is it all for? Is this all there is? And if I, I'll just speak from my own point of view, if I only had this life to look forward to, if I only had this life as the value of my existence, I would be in a very tough place right now. I would be in a very tough place because I would see that all of the work of my life in the various things that I've done is, is, is going to be separated from me. All of the people that I love are going to be separated from me. And this can bring the greatest level of despair one could know. And trust me when I tell you billions of people in this earth, on this earth today, live in that despair. But we know, as we'll see in the scripture this morning, Verse 15 of our text, that by the word of the Lord, not by my word, not by science uh, word, not by the, the hopes and wishes of people, by the word of the Lord, we know that physical death is not the end of everything. Physical death is the beginning of the best part of who we are and what we are as people of God. And we know we owe our knowledge of this fact, and it is a fact. We owe this knowledge of this fact to Paul the Apostle, who is addressing a church filled with people who expressed worry to him because Paul had schooled them on the return of Jesus Christ one day to reign and to rule on the earth. And these people from this precious church in Thessalonica are concerned for loved ones that loved the Lord, but then passed, and they do not, they're not on the earth now, and the fear was, the Lord's going to return, and they missed it. 
It's like you rush to the airport only to find that your plane has left and there's no way to get on that plane. And so the Apostle Paul wants to provide them with a truth that was, until the time he revealed it, a mystery to the church. And of course, what I'm speaking of is the rapture. The rapture of the church. We're going to be speaking all about the rapture of the church this morning. And we're going to finish that that topic next week. Uh, I entitled this Bible study, Out of Here, because that is in your future and mine. And the interesting thing about this great news, because Paul's message here is encouraging. It's comforting to the church that he addressed in this letter. It's also encouraging and comforting to you. As believers in Jesus Christ, you have a glorious future ahead of you. And as much as you can be down about the things that are going on in your physical body that ultimately will break down and pass away, you will continue as a child of God in the presence of God. And so this morning and next week, we're going to break down this topic in three parts. First of all, we're going to look at what the rapture is and how it differs from the second coming of Jesus Christ. Believe it or not, we're talking about two distinct uh, appearances of Christ in the rapture and the second coming, so we want to distinguish those two. Secondly, we're going to fix the point in time, not the exact day, not the exact hour, but the point in time in the whole eschatological timeline of when we might expect the rapture to occur. And it's no great news or or, uh, secret here, uh, the position of this church. We believe it could happen at any day, okay? And then thirdly, we're going to see three reasons why the Lord wants you to know of the rapture as believers. This is, you know, some people pejoratively refer to uh, the rapture as the secret rapture, like we're crazy people who have this little secret. This is no secret. The Lord wants you to know about the rapture, and we're going to look at why he wants us to know. So we're going to cover these points. We're going to cover point one this morning, and we're going to introduce the second point about placing the rapture in a timeline, and then we'll finish the topic next week. We're also next week going to add 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 1 through 11 to complete the topic. So if you would stand with me for right now, we're going to be studying in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and we're going to be camped out between verses 13 and 18, so that'll finish the chapter. And we're going to be camped out there this week and also uh, most of next week. So we'll read the whole passage. Here's what it says. This is now Paul speaking to this church. He says, But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep. And of course, he's referring there to those who have previously died lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. 
Let's pray. Heavenly Father God, what a comfort it is indeed to know, Lord, the provisions you have made for your church. And Lord, as we stand here this morning as the body of Christ in Chapel Hill, we celebrate you, Lord. We thank you, Lord, for calling us to yourself. Father, I know that this particular passage is one that is subject of much debate within greater Christendom. And so, Father, I pray that you would just make it clear for us, Lord. Just let the text speak for itself, Lord, through the power of your spirit. I pray, Lord, that I, as your servant, to speak these words this morning would not in any way get in your way of speaking to your people this morning the truths that you want them to receive. We pray this all in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, we're going to drill in for a moment on what the rapture is, and it's, it's very clearly stated here. Um, but it was until Paul's time a mystery in the church. It was a mystery to human beings. Now, let me distinguish. Resurrection of a dead body was disclosed poignantly in the Old Testament. Um, the part that was the mystery is the, the translation of living people. But as far as just resurrection of the dead, for example, Daniel chapter 12, verse 2 said, and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. So there, Daniel is speaking of two resurrections, the resurrection of the just to everlasting life, the resurrection of the condemned to everlasting contempt, clearly identifying resurrection of the dead. Likewise, and this is one of the most beautiful passages, a beautiful song was written right off of the words of this passage, Job 19, verses 25 and 27, written by a man who is going through a level of torment and despair and discouragement, the likes of which maybe nobody has ever known. And yet this is, this is his hope. He says, for I know that my redeemer lives and he shall stand at the last on the earth. And after my skin is destroyed, this I know that in my flesh, I shall see God whom I shall see for myself with my eyes and my eyes shall behold and not another how my heart yearns within me. What a phenomenal statement of the glory that is God's, that he could take the likes of us after we have been returned to the dust of the earth and resurrect body, soul, and spirit that we would see our Redeemer in our bodies. Glorious. This was, this was clearly laid out in the Old Testament. But something more is brought into what the rapture is all about. It's something that, that was a mystery up until this time. And that is that in the, the moment of resurrection of those who have since gone on and passed in death would also be the translation of living people. And this would all happen at one time. He says, for this we say to you by the word of the Lord, this is verse 15 of our text, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout and with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead will rise first. Oh, we knew that part. 
because both Daniel and Job identify that. Then, verse 17, we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so a couple of things stand out from this. First of all, uh, this event that Paul is describing here, known as the rapture, it only pertains to believers of the church age. Those who have fallen asleep in Jesus, God will bring in with him, and then those who are alive and remain. Clearly, this is a reference to believers in the church age. Old Testament believers and those who are saved during the tribulation, they're resurrected after the tribulation. But what's being spoken of right here in our text, which we call the rapture, this only pertains to believers. Secondly, uh, it's clear here that the believers that it pertains to are those who have both already died. I mean, that would include all of the apostles. That would include some of the great heroes and martyrs of the faith. It would include every Christian uh, of the church age since Jesus' time until now who have died in faith. But it also includes those who are living. So if the rapture were to happen today, that would mean that every Christian in this room, and I hope it's every one of you, that we would be instantaneously translated into the presence of the Lord and we would be translated into our glorified bodies. And so that's the part that's new here. That's the part that Paul is bringing to the world. This is something that God had, had told Paul very specifically, and now he is commissioning Paul to share this. Now, I might say that Jesus alluded to it when he was still on the earth and he was speaking to his disciples and apostles in John 14, verses 1 through 3, we, we read this. And these are very uh, common words to share, for example, at a memorial service of somebody who's passed. Jesus said, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, you may also be. And so Jesus gave the clear expectation that he is coming for those who are his. I might also add that people from the time of Jesus' ascension right the way through to the present, but especially during that first century, these folks believed that in their lifetime, Jesus Christ would return. This is what was causing so much angst among the Thessalonians was, oh my goodness, he could be here any day. And if he comes and my aunt or my mother or my brother who has already passed is not here because they're no longer alive, what will become of them? And so we have these words of encouragement from Paul, but also kind of previewed by Jesus. Now, there's a third point uh, or a third thing I want to mention about this that, that doesn't necessarily uh, specifically relate to the event of the rapture, but it's a question that is often asked, and I guarantee it's probably on everyone's mind in this room at one point or another. And that question is, what happens when a Christian dies before the rapture. In other words, someone who is not translated because they're alive on the earth, they pass, they're in the grave. But what happened to them between the time 
that they died and the time that they are resurrected in the rapture? And this is a question that often comes up. Uh, one very common theory on this or, or position is what's known as soul sleep. You may have heard of this before, uh, where when you die in your body, your, your, your spirit and your soul go into a state of sleep. Uh, not being conscious would be the way to describe it, that you don't have a conscious uh, existence between the time of physical death and the time of, of resurrection. And this is not really the best reading of scripture um, because there are a couple of places where this idea of what happens when we die physically, what happens to the body has been addressed in a couple of places. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 8, Paul proclaimed, we are confident, yes, well pleased, rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. We have in our future, assuming we we physically die before resurrection time, we have in our future a moment where we will be instantly in the presence of the Lord, not bodily, but as but our spirit and soul, the other two components of our three-part being. Our body has passed, but our spirit is that part of our, of our makeup that allows us to know and commune with God. And our soul is basically who you are, your personality, your, your emotions, your thoughts, your self-awareness. All of the things that you are using right now to hear this message, to Behold the room to understand your position in the room. These are all things that are packaged in what is known as your soul. And this spirit and soul is in the presence of the Lord. And I believe it is a conscious presence. Uh, again, Paul, writing in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9. Paul says, I has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. We know also that in Revelation chapter 19, where the, where the church is now in heaven with the Lord, that, that we have this beautiful marriage supper of the Lamb. And so between the time that you die and the time when your body is resurrected, you have existence, you have consciousness, and you are with the Lord in that, in that form waiting for that moment when you join with your, um, with your um, glorified body. So this is the moment of believer's resurrection. And it is a time when our physical bodies are transformed into something that the scripture says is recognizable as you and yet is very distinctly different from you. If you would... Turn over to um, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Because in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul also gives us detail. Paul also gives us uh, understanding of what this miraculous event will be like for the believer who experiences it. We pick it up in verse 51 of 1 Corinthians 15, and this is what we, we read. He starts out by saying, Behold, I tell you a mystery. See, he's, he's, he's now sharing something that previous to this time had not been known. Resurrection of the dead, yeah, we knew about that. 
But resurrection or, or translation of the living Christian is what he's about to tell them. We shall not all sleep. So he's saying not all of those who are going to be resurrected or translated will be dead at that time. But we shall all be changed. So whether you are dead in the grave or alive on the earth, in this moment of rapture, you will be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised first incorruptible and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruption, corruptible has put on incorruption and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, Hades, where is your victory? See, the part that, that gets us down, the part that gets us in despair is that our soul and our spirit are, are tied completely to our bodies. And so the body that we have is what we have to experience the world around us. And that experience becomes depreciated day by day. Our hearing is not what it used to Wait a minute, sorry. Our hearing is not what it used to be. Our vision is not what it used to be. Our strength starts to dissipate. Our memories aren't... What were we talking about? <laughs> Our memories aren't what they once were. And so we cannot help but be, but be concerned and to be maybe even depressed a little bit about how these things are tracking but it's explained to us here. We are in a corruptible body. We are in a mortal body. A mortal body is one that is not going to last forever. A corruptible body is one that has built into it the process of degradation. Uh, this is why every single thing that you find on earth moves from a state of order to increasing levels of disorder. This is known as the law of entropy. It is one of the very powerful arguments against any notion of evolution as the way in which things came to be. It go, evolution flies in the face of that universal truth of things that are ordered moving from a state of order to less order to less order to corruption, to degradation, to decay. And any piece of machinery... Uh, any teenager's room uh, proves this out very, very quickly. And so what we read here is that this corruptible, this corrupted body will be raised incorruptible. Or if we are alive and remain on the earth, this corruptible that I'm packaged in right now, if the rapture were to happen in the next second or minute or hour, this corruptible broken body would immediately be translated into a body that is immortal, that is perfect, that is glorified. You know, when we see Jesus, we'll be like him. Imagine that. Because when you read in the Gospels about the way in which the apostles and disciples viewed Jesus after he rose, they were stunned. They could recognize him. They knew it was him. They saw the holes in his hands and in his side. And yet he was, he was so much more. And had capabilities that the, that the mortal human bodies that we reside in um, 
can't do. We can't go through walls. Uh, we can't move from one place to another instantaneously and all of the rest. Now, the, the thing that uh, is kind of silly, and, and I'm loath to even bring it up because I know you people uh, represent uh, a very mature body of Christians, but often some quarters of Christendom and unbelievers will throw in your face that there's no mention of rapture in the Bible. You can't find that word in the Bible. Of course, you can't find the word Bible in the Bible, but never mind. Um, and and they, so, so they're, they're standing on this idea that this, this concept of the rapture was a relatively recent uh, innovation, if you will, in theology, which is kind of funny because all of the text that I'm reading to you is right in the first, you know, is right in the New Testament. And, uh, and so there's this puzzlement about, well, there's no mention of rapture. But this is, this is a silly thing, and so I'll just quickly clear that up. What we've read there in our text is that, uh, is that we will be caught up. And of course, in the original language that the, that the text was written in was Greek. And so the word that was used there was our harpazo, which simply means to be snatched up violently and suddenly, just snatched away. And that was the word that was the original text. And then that text, that Greek text, was translated into a version of the Bible known as the Latin Vulgate version. And Harpazo was translated from Greek to Latin as being raptus, from which we get our word rapture. So the etymology of the word is, is very consistent. It starts from uh, harpazo, which means a snatching away, a quickly taking off the earth, so to speak, translated in the Latin for that particular Bible, raptus. And then, of course, when it was ultimately translated into English, we, we changed it to rapture. And so this is, this is something that's there and has been there um, from the beginning. This is not a new doctrine. This is a doctrine that Paul the Apostle was writing about in the first century, something that Jesus alluded to in his first advent, okay? Now, here's a point that we must drill into a little bit because um, there are, we'll talk more about this next week, but there are all different versions or, or views as to when the rapture occur, occurs. And there's even a view that there really is no rapture. Really what the Bible refers to is one advent of Christ, that is his second coming. And I'm here to tell you that that is a mistaken view, that the rapture of the church that we read about here in our text in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and also in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is a separate and distinct event from what will be the second coming of Jesus Christ. And I want to help you distinguish this here. First of all, we've already seen back now in our text, verse 17 of our text, we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them, that is those who are previously departed. We will, meet, we will uh, be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. You see, the rapture, as described here, is an event where we meet the Lord in the air. It's also an event that is not noticeable to people on the earth other than the fact that your absence will all of a sudden be conspicuous. You will be conspicuous by your absence. Can you imagine if someone came in here to talk to us and as they walked through that door, the rapture happened, and all of a sudden the place is empty? Wouldn't that be great? Um, 
So, so to be clear, the rapture is a moment in time when only believers experience the presence of the Lord, but that experience is not here on the earth. It is in the clouds with Jesus Christ. Now, that is in, distinct, uh, uh, that is in distinction to the second coming. We already saw a, uh, a reference to the second coming when we were in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, Verses 12 and 13, there we read, And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love to one another and to all, just as we do to you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. Now there are the references to the second coming. The distinction is in the second coming described there in verse 13 of chapter 3. Jesus is coming with his saints. Over here in chapter 17, and in the passage that we, or not chapter 17, but chapter 4, verse 17, and in that whole passage, Jesus is coming for his saints. We're on the earth, and he's coming to take us to him, okay? Um, the second coming is described in several places in scripture, uh, notably Matthew 24, for example, Verses 29 through 31, Jesus said this. He said, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of heaven will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Now, in that one place where Jesus is speaking of his second coming, a couple of things are called out by him, and they are in very much distinction to the rapture that we've read about in 1 Thessalonians 4. First of all, Jesus, describing the second coming, makes it clear that it will be seen by everybody on the earth. There will be no mistaking it. There will be signs in the heavens. The earth will be shaken. And then people will see the Son of Man coming. In contrast, as we read about the rapture, no one sees it coming. There's no signs that, that precede, oh, wow, what's going on here? And then all of a sudden, they see the Lord coming. And so... In the case of the second coming, everybody on the earth is aware of it. In the case of the rapture, nobody's aware of it. There's no signs that precede its coming. It happens, as the scripture says, in the twinkling of an eye. You know, you, you can go on the internet and you can look up, how quick is the twinkling of an eye? I was a fool and I did it, okay? It's just a tiny fraction of a second. It's like even shorter than the blink of an eye. It, a twinkling of an eye is the... A light, a beam of light reflecting off your eye as it moves on. So it's almost like the speed of light. Another thing that's called out in Jesus' description of the second coming is where the church is at that moment. Here, as we read about the rapture, the church was on the earth. Either in the grave or on the earth alive and were translated out of here. But when Jesus describes his second coming... He says there in verse 31 of Matthew 24 that he, Jesus, will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet and get this, they will gather his elect 
from the four winds and from one end of heaven to the other. So what Jesus is clearly saying is the church is already in heaven. They weren't on the earth and all of a sudden translated out. The angels are gathering them from the four corners of heaven because when Jesus comes to the earth, he comes with you. He comes with me. Watch this. If you would flip over to Revelation chapter 19. Revelation 19 has two very important events described in it. One is something I alluded to a few moments ago, the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now we know that we are the bride of Christ. Scripture clearly establishes that. And Jesus and, and the apostles continually used the metaphor of a Jewish wedding to describe the intimacy and the union of Christ to his bride, the church, which is you and me. And of course, a typical in the, in the um, protocol of a Jewish wedding of the first century was a marriage supper that, 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 that brought bridegroom and families and friends together. And that happens in chapter 19. It's happening in heaven. And then we, we move to verse 11 of chapter 19, and this is what we read. Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was called faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, and with it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He makes himself, he himself treads the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of the Almighty God. This is the triumphant return of Jesus Christ to the earth to reign and rule. And clearly noted there is that the armies of heaven clothed in fine linen is you and I coming to earth with the Lord. And so when we look at these two things, the rapture and the second coming of Christ, scripture distinguishes them very clearly. The rapture, no signs or wonders preceding it. No warning that in any moment these people are out of here. Jesus Christ does not step onto the earth as he does here in Revelation 19. He comes in the air. He raises up from the graves those of the church age who have previously died. And in the twinkling of an eye, he translates those who are alive and remain on the earth. And they are all as a body, a body of Christ, the church age saints, brought up to the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. In contrast, the second coming, unmistakable. Every eye will see, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. Jesus will come in glory. He will be preceded by signs and wonders in the heavens. And he will come not for his church, but with his church. And so, again, there's, there's all different eschatological positions that people take one of which is known as amillennialism we'll talk more about that next week but with amillennialism they're really not reading the literal or they're not believing the literal truth of scripture so they don't believe there's an actual 1000 year reign and because of the positioning with rapture and tribulation and 
and then 1,000-year reign, they pretty much discount that there's a rapture at all. And instead, they just believe that a day will come when Jesus will return to the earth. And that particular view is out there in many churches. I'm sticking with what the word says, what the word says literally. And it makes a clear distinction of two events, one of which is a glorious event and the, next, the very next thing that will happen in the end, end times timeline. Now, this brings us to something I just want to introduce now in a summary fashion, and then we'll dive into more next week. And that is the timing of the rapture. This is, this is a question, you know, once you get past the arguments that people want to have about whether there even is a rapture in the future, then the question becomes, when does that occur? And the, um, the thing I want to say at the outset is no man or woman knows the day nor the hour. One of the greatest disservices to the whole area of the study of prophecy has been different people throughout history who have made a big splash of stating when the rapture is going to occur and they, they peg it to a day and a year. And of course, inevitably, it's always proven wrong. And this, this positions the study of this area of scripture as something for wing nuts and crazy people, for people who have got conspiracy theory type minds and all of that. And this is, a, this is a, a terrible shame because the Lord has told us no man knows the day nor the hour. But what we can know is we can know the season in which it would occur. There are things that the Bible clearly states that will be true both in terms of what the world will look like immediately before the, the rapture happens and, and the tribulation begins, and also where it fits in the overall progression of what we would call the eschatological or end times timeline. And the point of reference that all of these different theories swirl around is that moment in time known as the tribulation a seven-year period uh, that is a period of intense judgment and reckoning. And I want to just introduce you to a passage of Scripture that lays out the basic timeline. It is none other than the passage from Daniel chapter 9. Uh, Daniel, a man so beloved by God, a man that was given the privilege by God to be given a view into the future of the Jewish people. Now, again, when we read some of these things, and particularly Daniel's prophecy, you have to understand that it is very Jewish-oriented. We, we can't, you know, kind of move the Jews out of the way because most of us aren't Jewish, and so we, we put ourselves into this egocentric interpretation of Scripture. No, this was a prophecy given to Daniel concerning what would take place in the rest of, of what, what would take place in the future before everything would be resolved and God's plan for humanity would be completed. And so I don't want to go too far into this, but I do want to show it to you and speak to it a little bit because it becomes important next week as we start to look at where in this timeline the rapture will occur. If you would, just flip over to Daniel chapter 9. And like I said, this is a very um, important passage. 
verse 24 through 27 is the prophecy. And it starts out with uh, the angel speaking to Daniel. It's the angel Gabriel bringing a message to Daniel from the Lord. And he says, 70 weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city. Now, just to stop there, 70 weeks is 70 groupings of seven. When we think of weeks, we think of a grouping of seven days. He's not speaking about seven days. He's speaking about groupings of seven years. So 70 weeks would be a total of 490 years. And he's telling him that God's work through the Jewish people, God's plan regarding the Jewish people is going to be encapsulated into 490 years or seven, 70 weeks. He says, are determined for your people and your holy city. Now, here's what's going to happen at the, as a result of those 70 weeks. To finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, to anoint the most holy God. In those phrases there, one, two, three, four, five, six phrases, you have a summary of God's completed plan for the salvation of humanity. End of sins and transgressions. All of the things that break the world. All of the reasons why your body and mine are corrupted. All of the reasons why the whole creation groans relates back to sin and transgression that entered the world from the very beginning from Adam and Eve. Those things are finished. To make a reconciliation for iniquity. Reconciliation will occur. To bring in everlasting righteousness how is that going to happen? Jesus' reign and rule, right? To seal up vision and prophecy. Why seal it up? Because it's all completed. And to anoint the most holy. Jesus Christ will be king of the earth. So it starts out by saying there's a 490-year period that is, that is between a starting point I'm going to give you and the ending point where all these things will be accomplished. So now he goes on. Verse 25, now know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be 70 weeks and 62 weeks. Now let's just zero in on that for a moment. From the going forth of the command to rebuild Jerusalem. That's the beginning point of the 490 years. When did that particular command go forth? It's been traced back to 445 BC, a command given by the Persian king Artaxerxes, because remember, this is at a time when the people of Judah are in captivity. They were brought into captivity by the Babylonians. The Babylonians were conquered by the Persians and the Medes. And so at the point in time when this edict is given, and you can read about it in Nehemiah chapter 2, first eight verses, Artaxerxes gives the command to go back and to build Jerusalem. That starts the clock. And then we see two, two components of time, 70 weeks and 62 weeks, which together total 69 weeks. Those first seven weeks or 49 years, that's the rebuilding of Jerusalem. And then another 62 weeks, 483 years total, which brings us to verse 26. After the 62 weeks, that's the seven and then the 62, Messiah shall be cut off but not for himself. Now that is a reference to the point in time when Jesus Christ presents himself as king to the, to the Jewish people and they reject him and ultimately crucify him. 
and the people of the prince who is to come. Now, that prince who is to come is a reference to Antichrist. And the people of that Antichrist, the Roman Empire, they come, they destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with a flood until the end of war desolations are determined. Then he, reference back to the prince who will come, Antichrist, shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall be one who makes desolate, even until the consummation, which is determined, is poured out on the desolate. Now, to just break all this down for you. The period of time of those 490 years starts with the edict to rebuild Jerusalem. 483 years into the future, and there comes Jesus Christ presenting himself to his people as Messiah the King. He's cut off, not for himself, but for all of us. And then there's a gap. At the end of those, those years, those 483 years, there is a gap before the time when the prince who will come makes this covenant. What is that gap? That gap is the period of time in which we live. It is the church age. It is a period of time when God is calling in those who will be the body of Christ. Paul refers to this in Romans eleven twenty five 25, when he says, for I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. What Paul is, because people are wondering now, here's the church, what about the Jewish people? Well, you, you really marry Romans 11.25 with what we're reading here in Daniel because that gap, remember this whole prophecy in Daniel, it's all about the Jewish people. So 483 years of their history transpires and then there's a gap because they've cut off their Messiah, the king. And in the midst of that, God does a new thing. He calls a new people that he's going to use for his purpose, which is to spread the gospel. And blindness is, is bestowed upon the Jewish people. It says in part, because there are several, many Jewish people within the church, some in this church. But that in that gap period of time is when the Lord is calling in all the Gentiles. And then the clock begins again. And that beginning of the last week, which is one and the same with what we know of as the tribulation, begins with Antichrist making a covenant with the Jewish people and, and presumably with the rest of the world. And because the temple is mentioned here at the end of that prophecy, I think the inference is pretty solid that that covenant has a lot to do with allowing the Jewish people to rebuild and to worship at their temple in Jerusalem. And that becomes something that, that happens in the first portion, the first half of that last week. And then in the middle of the week, we see that Antichrist breaks that covenant. Now, that last seven-year period, the tribulation, that becomes the, the milepost or the guidepost around which all of the theories concerning when the rapture occurs revolve. Does it occur before the tribulation? Does it occur at that midpoint in the middle of the tribulation where the, the Antichrist breaks that covenant? 
And if you track through the book of Revelation, you know that the judgments that are happening to the earth during the seven-year period known as the tribulation really increase in intensity at the point at which Antichrist stands in the temple of God and declares himself to be God. Or does it happen at the end of the tribulation, which makes no sense. That's what we're going to take up next time. Uh, spoiler alert, because you've heard it in here many times. We believe with all our heart and with the literal truth of scripture that before that seven-year period unfolds, at the point when Paul describes the last Gentile is called into the church, we will be out of here. We will be taken off the earth and that will be before the tribulation period begins. And we're going to go into that in more depth next time. But I have to tell you, um, this whole passage that we're looking at in our text now, back in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, it's, it's given to that church. It's given to you and me as a comfort. It's given to us to give us hope. And God wants you to know these things. And next week, we're going to go into three reasons why God desperately wants you to know about the details of the rapture and i believe he also wants you to know that you will be taken out of here as his bride before the wrath of god is visited upon the earth so we're going to stop there now and we are going to go into communion let me just pray to, to close the bible study father i thank you lord for these words i thank you god for the preservation of this valuable vital truth and I pray, Lord, that, um, that we would receive this with the hope and with the comfort that you wished for it to be to us, Lord. And Father, we thank you, God, that you love us so much that you will come and bring us to you, Lord, to the place that you have prepared for us. What a glorious thing that is, Lord. And so thank you, Lord, for this word. Thank you for your spirit. We pray this all in Jesus' name, amen.